Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of Comfort Zone. Today we're going to talk about motivation. Everyone has been asking me, how do I both keep myself motivated and how do I keep my team motivated? Especially when plans are not going exactly as we had all expected them to go. Work is disrupted and we're a little less certain, actually a lot more uncertain about what the future holds. So I want to start today by first asking how well you understand what motivates you as a starting place. And then we're going to talk about motivating, inspiring, and bouncing back from setbacks. And my guest today is Kevin McCruden. And Kevin is uniquely qualified, I think, to talk about this topic. He's an international author and speaker. And his book, Who Are You?, and along with six other audiobooks, is sold in over 30 countries around the world. He's one of the most visible motivational and leadership speakers today. And he applies his very practical experience as a corporate trainer and consultant to influence real change. Now, he has made an interesting addition to Maslow's hierarchy as well that we're going to talk a little bit that gives some sort of practical ways that have an impact on performance. Now, what is most interesting about Kevin is not only does he speak and talk, but he's actually created a national movement. It's called the National Motivation and Inspiration Day. It was created after the tragic events in the U.S. of 9-11, and it's been passed as an official day by U.S. Congress and by the New York State. And I have to give you one quote that someone um, who's also fairly famous has said about Kevin. And the quote is, ever since the Delphic Oracle said, quote, man, know thyself, unquote, self-knowledge and self-understanding have been essential to inner happiness and outer achievement. Kevin knows how to gain the inner awareness that can change your life. And with that, Kevin, welcome to the show. That's quite humbling. Thank you, Wanda. How are you? I'm very well. And you? I'm excited to talk to you about it. This is such an important topic, especially now. So before I delve into what you think and how we do it and how we create greater motivation in ourselves and other people, you know, you've done a lot. You've got this powerful business. You've got this whole model and motivation. And you created a whole movement, Motivate America. Why? Why is this topic so important to you? What got you started? Well, I think the, the amazing thing is, you know, to, to grow up um, as the, the son of immigrants, uh, the youngest of uh, eight children, um, we were, and, and I hear you talk about motivation, you know, we were self-motivated. Uh, you know, out of eight children, my family, five boys, uh, all five of us were professional athletes. Uh, four of us played professional soccer and one was a professional fighter. Um, you know, when you grow up in that environment, it's a, it's a competitive environment, but it's also one that um, create uh, energy and creates motivation. So you have to be self-motivated. And my parents always said, you know, America is the greatest country in the world. And uh, so that's the movement behind Motivate America is, is I truly believe, look, people that live all around the world believe their country is a great country, and that's fine. Nationalism is, is great, right? Um, to be patriotic and to believe in America, I think, is really important. And that's why I created Motivate America, because I, I do believe it's the greatest country in the world, if not potentially in the history of the world. 
Okay. Um, And I agree with you. We all need to value and respect and honor our heritage and our home countries and be patriotic and all of those sorts of things. I'm totally interesting. I want to go back. You were a kid, eight children, a son of immigrants, and you're the youngest. And you said... The youngest of the eight. (laughs) Okay. All right. Even still... Five of you were professional athletes, and so it's a competitive household. Now, for some people, that would say, to keep up, I have to fight hard and compete, and that's the motivation. And some people would say that sense of I can, you know, I'm constantly competing is demotivating. So how do you see competition and motivation coming together? It's a brilliant question, right? And, and we repeat it throughout our lifetimes. And, and you know, you're talking about keeping people motivated. I've had so many conversations about this recently, right, and helping, you know, organizations and teams and executives. So there are people that are driven, and what let's call them A personalities or behavioral styles. And, and those types of people live a different type of lifestyle. They, they do keep themselves motivated. They are constantly pushing. They are and, and maybe they don't find peace, maybe they don't find balance, but they are self-motivated and they, they push. And they're constantly either pushing themselves or pushing other people or pushing their teams. So those types of people are, are so necessary in the world, right, for, for us to continue to have progress and to move forward. Um, but I think through this COVID situation, we're learning more about balance. And, and you know, we talk, we'll talk about emotional intelligence later, but I think there is this sense of balance. So being self-motivated is a, is a, a wonderful gift, uh, especially when you know that there are people out there that really struggle to be motivated on a regular basis. Um, and, and competition can shut people down. Competition can be too much for some people, and, and I've experienced that as well. So uh, it, there's a balancing act, as you know. I'm, I'm you know preaching to the choir. There is a balancing act, but being self-motivated and help motivate and inspire and lead and, and get people energized and moving forward. I mean, that's the lifeblood of humanity and, and, and the world. Yeah. Yeah. So it's what we think of as leaders. It's my job is to motivate. We're going to come back to that one in just a minute. Cause I think you want to challenge that as do I, um, I was just speaking recently with Ellen Garano and he says that um, the job of a leader is to take pressure out of the system as opposed to put pressure into the system. And one of the problems, I think, with the type A personalities as leaders, people who are so self-motivated, is they tend to want to put pressure in. So uh, that's the reason I'm asking that question about this balance between competition and motivation. Um, Let me go back to you, though. Uh, or one more piece, because one of the things I find with type A personalities or with people who are driven is that the rest of us look at them and we look at them accomplish a whole bunch of stuff, let's say being a professional athlete even, and we say, wow, it's gone so easily for them. And one of the things I find in talking to leaders is it has not gone easily for anybody who's ever accomplished anything that I've ever met. So, you know, it's not always rosy. You know, how has that worked out for you? Have you had rocky times? Oh, uh, absolutely. And, and, you know, I'm still actually recovering from one. Uh, we talked about it uh, briefly, and, uh, you know, it's a, uh, let's just call it a, a difficult and sad chapter uh, in my life. Um, three years ago, uh, I lost uh, the love of my life, and uh, two children that I helped raise for 11 years uh, went through a devastating divorce that caught me entirely out of left field. 
Uh, and next thing I know, there's a, another man living in my home three weeks later. Um, you know, it really, it, uh, because it caught me by surprise, and I really thought that I had found the person I was going to spend the rest of my life with, um, I, uh, I unfortunately lost everything. I gave up on everything. Uh, unfortunately, I, I, did, uh, I did become suicidal. Um, so taking someone that's accomplished so much and has so much energy and wants to do so much good, uh, to have a situation, you know, literally really, you know, gut me, uh, was, was very difficult. And so now three years later, you know, I'm back to my message and the things that I believe in and the things that I've written about for 20 years. I, I think, actually, I think, Kevin, that's inspiring in its own way. Not that I wish that on anybody. Please don't get me wrong mm-hmm. on that one. That's a horrible yeah. thing to have gone through. And I can only imagine how much it feels like your world has been pulled out from underneath you. But for somebody whose life is about motivation and inspiration, um, you know, I think it just speaks to the fact that all of us have some challenges, some of them quite dramatic, that we have to to deal with. And there's no magic bullet out of any of this. No, you're exactly right. I think that's the difficulty, right, is, you know, all of us face different challenges at different times. And uh, for many people, even right now, going through COVID and losing family members and, and having to struggle in a home with children and spouses and, and, and just trying to create this balancing act, right? So people are going through challenges, but we, we have no idea what their daily struggles are, what their relationship struggles are, what their financial struggles are. And, um, you, you know, that's where, for all of us, we need to continue to communicate you know, you need to talk about emotional intelligence and being able to really understand and have self-awareness, but then being able to communicate effectively to our, our spouses or our partners as to what those feelings mean and how they're acting out in our lives, because it's, it's critically important for the success of our relationships. Mm-hmm. It's... Um I'm seeing some amazing work, um, particularly sixseconds.org, Josh Freeman's group and colleagues talking about just giving people language for talking about the emotions that they're feeling and honoring the fact that there's a whole range of them, sometimes all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, Kevin, I, and I, think I don't... Difficult go ahead, too, go ahead. Wanda, is there's a ba- Once again, there's a balancing act there. I, I think, unfortunately, if, if we teach the language um, too much of, of feeling, I, I fear that it almost becomes a handicap where, where people almost use it as, let's not call it as an excuse, but, but they're not fighting through some of the feelings that in, in previous um, decades, previous uh, you know, generations, they gut through those things and make it through uh, difficult situations without necessarily elaborating or, you know, sharing too much or sharing too much about their feelings and just working through them and then, and then finding success on the other side of it. So I, I do fear that this overly sensitive talking about a lot of feelings, especially in a professional environment, I, I don't know. I, I think the jury may still be out on that. We, we still need to, I think, keep on working on that, I think. Right, right. There is... Um so, and I, I recognize that, that you can become wallowing in the emotions. 
and that that isn't mm. productive and that those, when you start to get into that one, the emotions just last for forever. I will say, and um, one of the things I love about sixseconds.org is this notion that the emotions, the physiology of the emotions literally last six seconds. It's the mm. dwelling on them that takes years <laughs> to get over. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. the ability to say, oh, isn't that interesting? That feeling is present as opposed to saying, I am something. Um, yeah. Can be helpful, but, you know, fair point on this one. Okay, so for all the trauma of three years ago, and for a guy who knows as much about motivation as anybody, I don't want to know chapter and verse, but what was key for you for coming out of that period and starting to feel like you were regrouping, rebuilding, getting back to yourself? I think there's a few components. So for me personally, um, there was family. Uh, and a support system, a net that that caught me and and uh, held me together for for the first you know few few weeks, few months, and then um, there were friends, and friends would say things like, "Kevin, you know, you were Mister Motivation before she came. You're the one that wrote the books, and you're the one with the audiobooks. She doesn't define you. You know, Mister and Mrs. Motivation was an offshoot offshoot of you. Like you created that." And and they were trying to get me to get back to myself, get back to believing in myself. And um, because I'm a, an athlete, a physical person, part of that began with uh, exercise. And I would literally, when you get that feeling of feeling sick and anxious, I would run for miles. You know, so I'd, I'd run or I'd ride a bike and I got very, very fit. Um, so then I felt physically strong. So for me, when I feel physically strong, then it helped with my emotions. Then it helped me. It was kind of cathartic. And then, you know, some counseling. So then all those pieces got me back to, and it it took a year, year and a half to get back to the point of me believing in myself and believing my message um, that I had already been doing for 20 years. But, But that one huge event, as we know, you know, for behavioral style studies, for Meyer Briggs, uh, for DISC, if you have significant uh, events or traumas in your life, it does even impact your, your literal behavioral style. So in that case, that's what ended up happening is, is it was a devastating event. It took me a, a year to kind of rebound, and then it took me another two years to get my business back in place and, and get back to you know, writing and working on books and working on movies and, and, and speaking again, all that sort of stuff. Okay. Great. Good for you. Congratulations. And I hope that's inspiration for any number of people. I know they're going through both similar experiences and other traumatic events where you're not sure how you're going to survive it. There is hope at the end of it. Um, And again, relying on resources is just hugely important. So let's turn then leaving that story and talking about the secret to motivation. What is it that really is motivating? What works? What doesn't work? I think I've had this discussion, this debate many times, and, and people talk about people that are self-motivated and people that are really demotivated, people that uh, just don't have that energy, don't have that fire, uh, maybe have a, a sense of uh, depression or um, you know, maybe even just sort of malcontents that just, don't, that, that just don't have the energy to want to perform. And, you know, it's very difficult. And it's, with the creation of National Motivation and Inspiration Day, I, I truly differentiate between motivation and inspiration. And as leaders, you know, it's really important for us to be able to, quote-unquote, inspire. 
And I think when you inspire something, it lights something inside of an individual. When you inspire someone, they light that their own fire. They, they get something in their belly. They get something in their heart. They get something in their imagination where they think, wow, like I can do this. I want to do this, right? And, and I'm sure everybody knows a moment when they either heard, you know, heard someone say something, someone speak, read a book, a movie, something that inspired them to feel like, yeah, I'm going to do this, right? The motivation is the hard part. It's the waking up every day and actually doing it. That's the motivation. Um, you know, Tony Robbins talks about, you know, the whole idea of, hey, look, I want to lift 500 pounds, but when I, you know, lay down on the bench to go lift it, <laughs> it's not moving. So the reality is, is, you know, it's, it's one thing to be inspired, but then it's the steps. It's the actions that you need to take in order to have the skill set, the core competencies to achieve what it is that you want to achieve. And that's where leadership comes in. Leadership gets to see the potential, gets to inspire someone to want to make a difference or, or have some self-motivation. And then it's coaching, it's mentoring, it's giving them skills so that they can reach the level of success that they want. And I think that's why life coaching has become so important um, uh, and, and mentoring, because giving people not only the inspiration, but giving them the, the toolkit, the, the belt with all the tools in it to, do, to achieve their goals, that's our job as leaders, is to help them. Uh, you know, whether it be climb the mountain or, you know, use the hammer or whatever it is that, you know, whatever analogy you want to use. Yeah. The, um, that's an interesting, I never really thought about the difference between motivation and inspiration. So that the inspiration is at, so what leaders need to do, and that is light that spark. But the motivation is the internal drive to keep doing it every day. Granted, there are people mm-hmm. helping me with that, but it's sort of me doing something about it and it's not just running straight to that goal and making it happen but doing the steps each day along the way that get me towards that goal i like the distinction between those two now tell me a little bit about inspiration how how do we inspire like what is it that makes people inspired or what drive i don't know answer that any way you can think of how to answer it well, I think that's the brilliance of it, right, is that, you know, one of the things that I guess moved me towards from, from management leadership and sales training towards sort of motivational speaking and motivational leadership uh, content was I would listen to Brian Tracy, Deepak Chopra, Tony Robbins, uh, you know, Zig Ziglar, you name all the big guys. So I'd listen to all of them and some kind of ignited something inside of me. Some of them it was like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a great message. I love that message, right? Even though they're all talking about, you know, probably a couple dozen of the same themes, right? The same theories. Right. But there's certain voices, there's certain ways, there's certain cadences, there's certain things that people say that connect with different people. And you may hear my voice and think like, boy, oh boy, is he, he's uplifting and he's inspiring. But someone else may hear my voice and be like, eh, he's, you know, eh, he's okay. But he listens to Tony Robbins like, now that's the guy, right? So that's mm-hmm. the beauty of inspiration. Some people go to church and they listen to their preacher, they listen to, you know, the gospel, they listen to, you know, a, a priest speak, and they're like, yeah, yeah, that's the message. And then some people go to church and they listen, and they're like, uh, I need to find a new church. So, so I think that's what inspiration is. Some people get it uh, through other people and get it through maybe a movie or a book or songs. And then some people take a little bit more. They, they take something else that, re- that will really uplift them to want to make a change in their lives. And uh, it, it's very individualized, very individualized. 
And do you have a way of characterizing? So I have some buckets to know of, you know, how do I know if this person is motivated by this or by that? I mean, is there, or excuse me, inspired by? Yeah, I, I think you can, in, in a professional environment, once again, so not being general, but being specific. I think uh, understanding people's behavioral styles, and I think there's lots of companies now that make sure that they either do a Myers-Briggs or they, they do a DISC uh, analysis when people are being onboarded. So you get mm-hmm. a sense of uh, who they are, what kind of people they are, and then you get a sense of how they react to different circumstances, different situations, different opportunities. And some people are driven and inspired and energized by challenge, and some you can see kind of shut down, kind of get intimidated, kind of. So as you manage and lead, that's how you determine what the assignments are, who gets put on what teams, who gets to work together, how they get to work together. Um, you, you, know, you mentioned something a little bit earlier, and I just want to touch on it quickly. Is So recently there's a new release of Michael Jordan. And mm-hmm. everyone knows the name Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player potentially to ever live, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, there was a positive PR about him winning his five championships and his competitive nature. And, and the, the publicity of it and the coverage of it, whether it be by U.S. basketball or whether by the Chicago Bulls or whether it be by Michael himself, was all very positive. But now this new release that comes out shows him in action where he's cursing at players, he's screaming at players. So there's another side to this. You know, there are people that are motivated by intimidation, by someone yelling at them, by someone pushing Mm -hmm. them and literally kicking them in the butt. Some people do react to that. And it's interesting to watch leadership in different scenarios. But this one's Mm -hmm. interesting because Michael Jordan, who was hailed for all of his championships and how great he was, this is definitely showing a different side of how he motivated his fellow teammates. And it was, uh, in, in terms, you know, a little brutal. You know, he was, he was yeah. a little difficult. So once again, yeah. leadership, you, you find the things that help motivate and lead and, and inspire your team. Um, and then, you know, I always differentiate between leadership and management, right? So Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting debate, and I'm going to avoid that one for just for the moment. Um, so okay. I think if I'm hearing this one correctly, one of the secrets is understanding that whatever inspires somebody may be, um, it's a lot, it's a bit about style, and it's a bit about the message and the words, and it's probably a bit about the relationship with me and how much they admire me and so on, but it's hard to predict what's going to light the fire for somebody. And that motivation is very individually driven. So the secret here would be what motivates me is not necessarily what's going to motivate somebody else. Agreed. So I've got to learn that turn, that twist, that tactic that's going Mm -hmm. to be most effective for an individual. Okay. Yeah. And and you and you might think of say like a Dale Carnegie, right? How to how to win friends and influence people. You know, how how do you learn how to inspire people? What what are the key words that you might say to one group of people and maybe not other people? Um, you know, not to bring up politics, but you look up or you look at an orator like an Obama or, you know, a uh, Martin Luther King. Their cadence, their delivery, the power in their voice, the tone of their voice. It, it reaches out to a larger audience of people that are uplifted and inspired by the way they speak. Um, and then there's others that just, just don't, they just can't do it. You know, they just yeah. don't inspire people. 
Yeah. So you're saying that part of this inspiration is um, a thing that I would have called executive presence or gravitas. It's the tone of my voice. It's the way I hold my posture. It's the cadence with which I speak. It's the ways I use my voice, the modulations, the pace. It's a lot of those factors. And those might work for one audience and not work the other audience. So it's not like there's a one-size-fits-all. It's a quite broad mix. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. For, for me to try and learn or to sound like or try and sound like, you know, Barack Obama or Martin Luther King, it, it would sound silly, right? So someone would see me and be like, what are, what are you trying to do? Like, so you, so you have to find your own power, right? So the power that you have you need to find that comfort. You need to be able to emanate this energy from you that has a certain positive, um, congruent message where people get it. Like, they'll get your energy and they'll get your message because it's legitimate, right? It's organic. If you're trying to fake it, I think people figure it out pretty quick. Okay. I think you said something very important there, that you're trying to emanate this energy from you, which means I have to be pretty passionate about what it is I'm saying. I have to believe what I'm saying. And I have to have some energy and some excitement or some drive or some something so that I can then use my, find my own voice, my own cadence, my own pace, my own way to Mm -hmm. convey that energy, I think. Is that reasonable, Summer? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Okay, all right. So talk for a minute about motivating a team. So we've already identified that there's this inspiration, lighting a fire in somebody else, and then there's the motivation that helps them acquire the skills to actually achieve that goal day in and day out, and that's a lot more of coaching, understand what's going to work for that individual. We also recognize that it's very individually tailored, so tactics that don't work for one person don't necessarily work for another, so i got to have a good sense of people's individual styles. Now, when I take that to a team, particularly a team that is not right in front of me, meaning I can't see them day in and day out, what's your advice then? What's interesting is with management teams, I've always talked about you know sports analogies, right? So the New York Yankees almost every single year spend more money than almost any other club in Major League Baseball on their talent. And, and that's been for, you know, for a number of years. They spend an awful lot of money but it doesn't guarantee championships. It doesn't guarantee World Series. So that's been duplicated in a number of instances. My team, the Oakland A's, right, they notoriously do not spend a lot of money on talent, but sometimes they they have such a great training program that they create talent, and it makes them very competitive to some degree. So if we take that sports analogy and we think about draft picks, like in the NFL, like they're following kids that are 13, 14 years old, kids that are in college, kids are, so they're watching them very carefully to see how they grow, how they change, what skill sets they have. As true professionals, look, we get a resume or we do an interview and we're assuming that that gives us enough information to determine whether we're hiring someone. So we truly don't know who it is that we're hiring, but we hope that they fit into the role. And then I think, you know, so I have a management system that I've put in place for a number of years. And as you go through your hiring process and you look at their skill sets and the accountability, we have metrics and core competencies, and, and we have all sorts of things to help measure their success. And their job, their job description should correlate precisely with what the core competencies are, the skill sets that they need in order to be successful. Mm-hmm. And as you watch them try to do the job, 
you get to see. Look, they do. They hit a home run every time on this. They're awesome on this. They're great at communication. They're great at interpersonal skills. However, you know, achieving certain metrics, certain goals of getting things done, they're not doing a great job with getting things accomplished. So I have to help coach them on this piece. This piece becomes blatant where I need to make sure they're growing and figuring out how to get work done. It's great they speak well. It's great they communicate well. It's great they're a great team member. We, we need performance. So those are the things as a manager, you know, you, you go through your metrics, your core competencies, see where people's strengths and weaknesses are. And then, and, and I have a great friend uh, that, that taught me this great language of they're not weaknesses, they are underdeveloped strengths. <laughs> because, <laughs> because maybe it's something that they never paid attention to or never, or, or never really worked at, right? So, uh, so that's the balance of a manager, right? Is understanding the, the work, uh, workflow and the product that our, our people are creating. And then the distance learning piece or the distance piece of them working at home. Um, look, I think anyone that now tells you that they've made the conversion from working in an office to working at home, they may be working more at home now than they ever did in the office. Because, you know, there's a sort of a guilt associated with it, right? So they, they've got their computer, they get to their computer, it doesn't matter if they showered or not, they're at their computer, they're with their coffee, they're doing their work, and then they have, inter- they have interactions or uh, interruptions during the day, so then that causes them to feel like they want to do more work, so then they work right up until dinner time. Then they have dinner, but then they go back to the computer after dinner, so then they're working late now, too. So, so it is funny that I think people, I'd say most, not all, I think most people, when they're left to their own devices, they're given assignments, they're given responsibilities to work from home. I think people are pretty diligent about actually putting in the time to get the work done and get it done well. Well, and this would all come back to saying, um, what is it that people are missing a skill set on? Not just looking at the goal, but, you know, and saying we're not hitting that goal, but saying what's the skill set that's missing here that that individual needs to shore up or strengthen in order to be more effective at hitting that goal in a kind of balanced and appropriate way. And I like that angle as an understanding of what it is it's going to take to motivate as opposed to, I have people who are demotivated. Let me find a way to fix that one. Okay, Kevin, yeah, perfect time and to... I think encouraging people at things that they're good at. One, So I, I think, you know, there's a philosophy out there about, about catching people that are doing the right thing. Catch them and, and, and catch them when they're being successful and encourage the positive. There are managers or leaders out there that are a little brutal about being hard on people, catching them making mistakes or not doing things right. You know what? There's your balancing act with emotional intelligence, with good management leadership skills. Rather than beating people up for failing or beating up people for not doing well, maybe there's coaching and mentoring as opposed to being really hard on people. So I think that's a great transition that's been occurring in in our work environments. I think we have spent the next five hours talking about how to do coaching and mentoring more effectively, (laughs) a skill set we're going to have to learn if we're going to survive in the coming years. All right, Kevin, perfect place for a break. So with me today is Kevin McCruden. Um, Kevin's book that we've been talking about is Who Are You?, And Kevin is the one who's been responsible for creating in the U.S. the National Motivation and Inspiration Day. And we'll be right back. We'll keep talking about how it is that you can do more to keep motivating people and talk about Kevin's model on motivation. We'll be right back. (music) 
This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. My guest today is Kevin McCruden, and we have been talking about motivation. And I think if I have one summary in about the last part, there's actually two points. One is I want to try to find ways to inspire other people, meaning to light a fire in other people. And how I do that still seems a bit mysterious, but it is a part of how I present myself, my energy, my enthusiasm, my voice in an authentic way that um, is going to inspire some. And it's not one size fits all. What inspires one person is not the same as what inspires somebody else. And once I've lit that fire, then my job as a leader is to try to figure out how to coach that individual to achieve their goals, to keep them systematically going from step one to step two to step three, to reinforce the skills um, that will let them get where you want them to do. And we've done that, you know, not by blaming them, but by finding the positives, finding the strengths, and helping guide the places that are underdeveloped and need strengthening, shall we say. I like your phrase, Kevin, of it's underdeveloped strengths as opposed to weaknesses. <laughs> not, so, not mine. It's my friend Kelly's. I won't steal <laughs> it from her. That's hers. That's hers. All right. Fair enough. But I heard it from you. So thank you and Kelly. <laughs> All right. So you have this concept of true leaders, the ones that are loved, but that have no title. Tell me about those people. I think we, we come across them all the time. And uh, they're people that uh, just have an aura, a positive aura about them, a positive way about them that people just like. And when we have those types of people in our teams, um, they're really someone that, that people like to rally around. They're, they're people that like to be connected. And uh, they're incredibly valuable because they're individuals that don't necessarily need a claim. They don't necessarily need a title. They don't necessarily need... They just, they're very positive and they're willing to work hard and be really good team members. And, and, and I believe those people are, are truly invaluable. And, and those are the types of people that I think we, we want to have on our team. So when we have a balanced team, we have people that are A, driven, you know, uh, Ds, uh, people that, you know, Myers-Briggs, uh, you know, energized folks that are, that are really pushing the envelope. But then you have these very balanced people that are a central sort of component 
that are pro-team, pro-engagement, pro-trying-to-get-things-accomplished. You know, just really, if there's a word for the bad apple, these are the good apples that that help uh, energize the rest of the team. Okay. We... um I think about some, any number of the assessments that I use. In particular, I'm a fan of Hogan, as I think a number of people um, have heard me say on the show. But we see profiles of individuals who are motivated by things like helping other people, um, not necessarily motivated by the recognition or the acknowledgement. They don't need to be the ones that are standing out. Um, they want to be a part of it. They want to contribute to something su- successful. And I could give it much more sophisticated language, but there are ways of assessing those people. They don't typically look like your classic, quote-unquote, profile of a leader. Uh-huh. But they're becoming more and more and more important, I think, as we need greater and greater collaborative cultures. Would you agree? Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I think collaboration is, is a great uh, phrase to use with those types of people because they are collaborators. They're willing to share acknowledgement. They're willing to share the success of the team with everybody. And, and let's just say maybe they have a very balanced ego. So it isn't about them and about drawing attention to themselves, but rather sharing with everyone. Yeah. Yeah. We certainly appreciate working with them. Um mm-hmm. So what is it about them that makes them so unique? I get these qualities, this positive aura. Can you give me any? I mean, we've said a lot about it. Is there anything else you can tell me about them? I, I think, yeah, you've touched on it. I think these are people that are, are balanced. And, and in my discussions and, and conversations about emotional intelligence, I, I would say that these tend to be people that are very stable, probably come from very stable backgrounds, are, are fairly well-educated. Uh, they are not threatened, and in, in, in my model of uh, you know the 21st century multidimensional hierarchy of needs, these are people that I would consider potentially self-actualized. These are these are people that are not threatened by other people. They're not intimidated by other people. Uh, they're accepting of other people's types of behaviors, um, and, and I think they're just so wholesome um, that that's what really makes them so compatible and so easy for teams to work together with them. And collaborate and and create success because they're just not threatened and they're not egotistical. So it's a great combination. Okay. Now, I have a number of clients who would say they think they're like that, but they're not (laughs) getting the credit. They're not getting the acknowledgement, meaning they're not getting the opportunities. Their ideas are not getting credit for the ideas. They just don't feel like they're valued. Do you have any advice for, for those people? Gosh, you know, one, we probably talked a couple of hours on this one. Look, I think that's, that's the great challenge. In corporate environments, you know, if you want to go up the corporate ladder, which, once again, many of these folks aren't really interested. Like, they don't need to climb the corporate ladder. They're content with managing a team or they're content with their role. And they do assume, the ones I've worked with, they do assume that their quality of work will eventually elevate them to wherever they want to go. But they they have a philosophy of, like, it'll take care of itself. But as we all know, in corporate environments, there are people that are very proactive in promoting themselves, very proactive in borrowing other people's material so that they look good. Um, yeah, I mean, people that feel underappreciated, at some point you will lose um, that uh, institutional knowledge because they will go somewhere else. And And I think that's the fear for us as leaders is when you take someone who's really good like that and they feel underappreciated and they're not being acknowledged for their contributions, at some point you will lose them 
and, and it, it will have a great impact on your team. I think that when you talk about, um, these are often people, I, uh, some of my clients would describe them as culture carriers. They're a bit of the glue for the team. They kind of keep the team coordinated together in a place that people are happy to be a part of. And when you take those individuals out of the team, it becomes a completely different place. And it can change not over the course of years, but over the course of weeks. Oh, absolutely. It can be an immediate impact. Absolutely. All right. Fabulous. Um, Is there anything you think they're doing that the rest of us aren't doing? Yeah, I, I think, you know, as educators, right, for both of us, we have passion about this, and probably most of your audience probably has a passion about educating and helping people be successful. And this is why I'm so engrossed or, or, or you know, enthralled with the idea of emotional intelligence and personal uh, growth, is creating folks that are emotionally uh, stable and well-educated, uh, sophisticated, nuanced I think the more we can elevate people so that they, they find a balance with themselves, they, they become more comfortable with everyone else. And, mm-hmm. and I think when we remove ego, when we remove I, 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 and me, 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 um, you know, that's when, that's these people, that's, that's the, the kind of environment where people just enjoy being together. But once again, as long as people are producing, it's, it's great if everyone's in a work environment and everyone's happy, but if you're not producing, you know, the CEO has got to make a decision. Right, <laughs> it's like, right. hey, I'm glad you're all having a good time, and it's uh, Friday happy hour, but guess what? There, you know, work needs to be done here. Like, we need to right. accomplish that. Right. Right. You have to see that that kind of behavior is actually leading to um, execution and effectiveness at the end of the day, or there's it's a different story then. We're not focused on the right thing. As I talk to people who are a specialist in collaboration or conflict or negotiating with the enemy or hostage taking or pick any number of folks that I've interviewed over the last five years on this show, they often talk about the need to suspend your own agenda, to really tune in to hear what somebody else is saying, to be open to a completely different perspective. And I think the kind of individuals that you've been talking about, what you've called as true leaders, the ones that are emotionally stable, that have a balanced view of themselves and therefore are more comfortable with others, are exactly the kind of people who can do those things. And they are the, I think, the bedrock for creating collaboration. I think there's a combination. Once again, there's a balance. You know, when I brought up the whole Michael Jordan analogy, this new video of him, look, there are leaders that motivate, inspire, energize. It's high energy, high impact, uh, hand-to-hand combat environments. And in some jobs, some places, that works. For certain cultures, that works. So I think we take the next step, and it's about your culture. What's the culture that you're creating? And, and if you want everything to be, you know, lukewarm milk, or, you know, you want everything to be just sort of tempted, then you know what? Then that's the kind of people you put into that culture or that environment. And I think we could all agree as leaders that your responsibility is creating a culture. And mm-hmm. if you allow a competitive, cancerous culture to grow, that's, that's your doing because you allowed certain managers to be in place. You allowed certain employees to be hired. You allowed a culture to manifest itself. However, if you want everyone to get along and you want collaboration and you want a non-threatening environment, as long as you can get performance, and, and maybe it's a, you know maybe it's in a high tech environment, maybe it's an engineering environment, maybe maybe it's a more cerebral environment where people 
function higher without threat, without intimidation, with, you know, collaboration. So it is, it depends on what job, what work you're doing, what environment, and what culture you're trying to create. I think that's what differentiates these different types of people that you have working for you. Okay. This is an interesting, so fair enough to keep reminding me at every single point, Kevin, that is about balance. It's something that I totally believe that one side or the other is not always right. It's the the yin and the yang of the two that make a difference. Um, Love it. When, I think one of the critical things of a successful culture, and I'd like your reaction to this one, is we're not afraid of having a difficult conversation. Hmm. So I don't, I would never, I, you know, because that gives that balance, like, um, can I say the really hard messages? Can we have the head-to-head fight if we need to have a head-to-head fight for the great for the better end at the end of the result? Or do we have to all be so nice to get along that we can't say what we really mean? So what's your reaction to that one? Listen, I think all of us um, have been uh, introduced uh, to the millennials and these, uh, these new young folks that are coming into our work environment that do kind of feel like they can say anything. <laughs> and <laughs> for the multi-generational work environment, I think some of the older, uh, more seasoned uh, staff, I-, I think, are put off by it or kind of like shocked that people say some of the things they say now, right? So yeah. I-, I think there's a balance. Once again, I think part of our coaching and, and, and I've always found it peculiar in, in some of our new work cultures that we just we give so much credit and so much responsibility to these young people. They've come out of school and they have so much promise, but we just we're we're allowing them really to change the culture of our workforces. And I think there's a there's still coaching to be done there. And it becomes look, you can feel a certain way, um, but you know what, you need to have a filter. And you know, when we're having uh, group meetings or if we're having a conference or if we're having a conference call or a webinar, you know what? Modulate what it is that you say. Uh, use a little bit of a filter before you just say whatever you feel like saying. And if it's something critically important or it's uncomfortable, then you know what? Then talk to your manager first or talk to your leader or get, you know, go up the hierarchy. And I think uh, to some degree, uh, they have some difficulties with hierarchy, uh, they just, you know, they kind of feel like they can kind of say what they want because their parents have always kind of encouraged them to say what they want. So these, this is where earlier I was talking about this feeling thing. We, we have to be careful about how people feel, how they express it, and what they say because it can be cancerous. It can be dangerous for our work culture, our work environment. Um, but I think when people feel the need to have honest dialogue about a difficult situation that is impacting either coworkers or the output, then yes, they should feel comfortable enough to say to their manager, I, I need to have this conversation because it's important. So, okay. so there is, the, there's the filter, there's not blurting it out, there's not saying it in inappropriate ways or inappropriate environments, but there should be a culture where if there's something significant going on, they should be able to have a conversation with their manager so that it gets resolved. Okay. So we come back again to this notion of it's not just the way I want to do it, but it's recognizing where other people around me are coming from and what is going to work for them. And a little bit of adaptation, a little bit of filtering is the word you use, not to avoid the conversation, but to make the conversation a more constructive one. Agreed. Agreed. Okay. All right. Fabulous. All right. We'd be 
amiss, Kevin, if I didn't get you to talk about your model of motivation. So I've already teed up that you have this update on Maslow's hierarchy. Walk us through what that looks like. Well, it's funny because, you know, I've, I've seen uh, lots of different references to it. And, and anyone that's been out there in the, uh, the training environment, uh, corporate training or even in education, you know, you see Maslow pop up all over the place, uh, you know, sort of the master of, uh, of motivation and, um, you know, what motivates people by meeting their needs. So, I mean, mm-hmm. that's the simple model and everyone gets it. Well, let me not say that. Not everyone gets it, but people assume that they get it. And so what happened to me in the training environment is I would keep on seeing Maslow's model, but it was always presented as a one-dimensional model. And I was like, well, wait a second, how can a one-dimensional model represent the complexity of the multi-dimensional human experience? Mm-hmm. And so that was my, you know, thesis. That was my, you know, uh, question is, like, that just doesn't make sense. So that's what led to the creation of my 21st century multidimensional hierarchy of needs, is that it incorporated uh, Clay Aldifer's uh, progression and regression model. Um, mm-hmm. It allowed people to be able to uh, be self-actualized in certain aspects of their life while also struggling to uh, meet some fundamental needs of uh, the rest of their lives. So if you look at a true pyramid, right, so everyone mm-hmm. refers to Maslow's hierarchy as a pyramid, but it's really just a one-dimensional triangle. In right. creating a multidimensional uh, environment, what you now look at is this idea that, in my example in the book is, let's just take a, a, a beautiful 18-year-old child that's really physically fit, that just looks great, right? They've done a tremendous job of taking care of themselves. They're an amazing athlete, the six-pack abs, the whole thing. You can't say that they're not self-actualized and fulfilled in their physical body, and they've put in so much work to become physically fit. Okay, so they're self-actualized. But they're these students, uh, morally corrupt, uh, financially broke. <laughs> so it enables them to say, look, I, I still need to I, – I got a lot of work to do, right? So that's what – that's all my model does is it breaks down different components of our life to say, hey – I'm, I'm meeting the fundamental, basic physiological needs of my life in this component, my spiritual component, my relationship, my financial life, my school life, but I'm striving for more. And I'm really excelling in this one thing, my physical body, because physical fitness is important to me, and I look great, and I feel great. So that looking good, great, feeling great helps motivate me to want to uplift the other areas of my life. And then there's your, those are your areas of focus. So whether it be your spirituality, whether it be your financial goals, whether it be your career goals, whatever those might be. Okay. I like that. This notion that we can be self-actualized sort of at the top of Maslow's hierarchy in one aspect of our life, one dimension of our life, but not necessarily in some of the other dimensions. And that gives us the um, motivation to say, it's not like a complete person or I'm a fully actualized person. I have other places to work on. All right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you have a way of helping people evaluate where they are in each of those different components? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So that's, you know, uh, once again, you, uh, in sort of a, a, a variation of my model where we bring in uh, emotional intelligence on top of this. So now you have to have accurate self-assessment. And in, in, in the area that I spent a large part of my life in soccer, my analogy is, uh, you know, our national movement in soccer is a lot of children go and play for what are called premier teams. But, you know, when you have you know, 50 premier teams, they cease to be premier. 
But the, the coaches and the trainers are telling the parents, oh, no, 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 this is a premier player. We think they have the talent. We think they have the ability. I think they can go to school and get a scholarship. And then when the kid goes to college, whether boy, boy or girl, and the college coach looks at him and says, you're, you're terrible. Like, you're, you're not good enough to make the team. Or, you know, you're just going to be sitting on the bench. You're just not that good. And so now for the first time, the awareness of a child becomes, oh, my self-assessment's been wrong all along. People have been lying to me. They've been telling me that I'm a really, really good player when, in fact, I'm really not that good. So we've stolen their emotional intelligence. We've stolen their ability to self-assess. So I think when we look at Maslow's hierarchy and being able to self-assess where we are in our life, some of it's pretty, you know, pretty fundamental, right? So we understand we've, we've met our physiological needs. We've met our safety needs. We feel secure, whether it be in our church, whether it be at work, whether it be our personal relationships, financially. So it's like, all right, so what's the next step? Where's the belonging? Where's the, you know, where am I getting to self-actualized or being fulfilled so that, you know what, I'm financially uh, secure. I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm self-made. I have money. Uh, money's not an issue. So now I can have comfort. I can feel fulfilled with, with my financial um, stability. Uh, you know, in the church, I want to be a church leader. I want to, you know, be a Eucharistic minister. I want to be able to read the gospel. I want to be involved in the community. But you know what? Uh, people don't respond to me. I, I don't know enough yet. So I have to keep learning. I have to keep growing. So each one of those levels is a self-assessment. And, and it's just by asking questions, just like you do in, in your coaching. It's, it's asking yeah. the right questions. So then, it, so then it makes someone self-aware. So then they're like, oh, oh, I understand. Okay. Okay. Sounds like an awful lot of what we do in coaching in general is getting people to understand where they stack up on some of these dimensions relative to other people. And I think sometimes relative is actually really a helpful point, exactly as you started with on the soccer analogy. Okay, Kevin, sadly, we are out of time. Fascinating discussion. I feel like we could keep talking for days on this thing of motivation. I feel like we're just beginning to scratch the surface in our understanding as well as in our practice of what it is to motivate myself, let alone to try to help somebody else find their own level of motivation. And I think two things that come back to me on this conversation too is that constant word about balance, 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 balance is not one or the other. It's a balance and a mixture of the two. And this notion that one size does not fit all, what is going to work for me is not necessarily what is going to work for you. So, Kevin, thank you for being a guest today. Well, what a, an absolute pleasure. And, yes, I, I, we could speak for hours. Uh, you're you're wonder to, the wonderful to speak with. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And, again, my guest is Kevin McCrudden, and the book is Who Are You? And now you see why that title associated with motivation and inspiration. Join us next week for more wisdom and getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.